0: Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent former federal officials for a dynamic discussion of the most important legal topics of the day. We've had another tumultuous week in Washington. It feels as if the president of the United States is on some sort of mad rampage against all institutions and even persons who don't display the one quality that separates good from evil and drives all policy determinations in his Manichaean world, namely personal loyalty to him. He has trumpeted, contrary to his attorney general, that he is the chief federal law enforcement officer in the country, a status that for him seems to encompass the prerogative to savage and defame prosecutors, judges, and even jurors. He has illegally exacted retribution against a war hero lieutenant colonel for testifying truthfully pursuant to a subpoena, and his twin brother, for good measure, the lieutenant colonel's, for no reason at all except the perceived sins of the brother. He's moved to oust the acting director of national intelligence for briefing Congress truthfully and according to legal duty and is currently canvassing for a permanent successor based on the single criterion of personal loyalty. And throughout it all, he seems obsessed with trying to scrub away the history of the Mueller probe and the impeachment. He is deep in the gutter and determined to drive us all there. But we're also seeing some pushback from institutions and individuals, and we have the prospect of continuing hand-to-hand combat, not to mention congressional investigations that guarantee yet further eruptions and reprisals from the Mad King. And that's where we find ourselves at the end of this crazy week. I'm Harry Litman. I'm a former U.S. attorney and deputy assistant attorney general and a current Washington Post columnist. And I'm joined by a stellar group of feds to bear down on the most important developments of the last several days. As we've been doing of late on Talking Feds, two of the people who join us here are among our most familiar faces and one newcomer to the podcast, although probably not to listeners. So, first, please welcome back Frank Figliuzzi, a national security contributor for NBC and MSNBC News. Frank was the former assistant director for counterintelligence at the FBI and also was previously the special agent in charge of the FBI's Cleveland division.
1: Frank, so glad to have you with us again. I'm going to avoid saying I'm glad to be here cuz I'm not. <laughs> but uh, the the news has been too grim, but uh, but here we are again. Thank All you. All
0: right, was it something I said? Matt Miller, Matt's a partner at Vianovo. Vianovo is a strategic advisory firm for high stakes brand, policy and crisis issues. Matt is also, as pretty much everyone knows, an MSNBC contributor and the former director of the Office of Public Affairs for the Department of Justice.
2: Hello, Matt hi Harry I'm uh, are unlike, you glad to be here say, unlike unlike Frank I'm always glad to be here or at least if I'm not I'm a uh, I'm too polite to say so all right
0: <laughs> and we welcome for the first time to talking fed Sam Vinograd Sam is CNN's national security analyst and she also writes for CNN a weekly column there entitled the presidential weekly briefing she is as well a senior advisor at the Biden Institute. She has extensive experience in high-level government posts. She worked for the Department of Treasury in the Bush administration and then held a series of important positions in the Obama administration, including the senior advisor to the National Security Council, was it? To Sam, the senior advisor to whom exactly?
3: National Security Advisor Tom Donilon.
0: And she supplements all that with a large portfolio of really good works in the world including serving as an advisor to the U.S. fund for UNICEF. All right, we have a fantastic group, so let's dive in. I want to start with the sentencing of Roger Stone, not so much for, well, partly for the actual developments there, but also the whole wacky lead up to it and focus on what it tells us about Trump's brazenness post-impeachment and where the Department of Justice is exactly in his solar system, which, as we know, revolves only around him as the sun in the center. To double back just briefly, Barr forcefully inserts himself in the process. There's huge consternation and revolt. But then at the sentencing, the department shows up and takes pretty much the first position before Barr had parachuted in or barring the entire leadership. What's your take on what happened there at the sentencing and the whole 90% re reversal that actually was the department's position in court?
1: There was some good news that happened, believe it or not, with the Stone sentencing. And th- that was that the judicial component of our criminal justice system held firm. And by that, I mean that while the investigative end, which starts off the process in our criminal justice system, is in question because of the degree to which it's being controlled by the attorney general, the prosecutive end is in question because of what's going on at, at DOJ and the appointment of U.S. attorneys and their use in secret special investigations led by Barr. At least we can still, for the time being, count on a federal judge to do the right thing. And I've I've heard a lot of people um, and seen comments on social media saying, oh, well, see, the judge agreed with Attorney General Barr that the sentencing recommendation was excessive. I look at it a different way. I look at it as despite the attempts by the White House and the Attorney General to intervene in a sentencing, the judge made up her own mind independently and came up with a decision that she can defend. Um, And that's easily defensible in the appellate process. She did that all by herself. um, And in fact, her job was made harder, harder by the intervention of the attorney general and the White House. Just as Barr has said publicly, hey, the president's making my job harder by tweeting. um, Guess what? He and the president have made the job of being a federal judge harder and they need to back off. So the system held and we should applaud that.
2: I agree with that, Harry. I, th- I think that the, the ju- I think Judge Amy Berman Jackson has been so impressive the way she's handled this case and the Manafort case before it. I, I disagree with your assessment a little bit that the prosecutor came in and did kind of a ninety percent reversal. I-, I thought it. I-, I interpreted what he was doing as walking a very fine line, coming in and saying the the enhancements ought to apply, which are these kind of you know added measures that can get you a, a longer sentence, uh, but not backing off of the department's second memo where they said that the sentence ought to be reduced uh, from you know, seven to nine years down to something much more substantial. He never really walked away from that. So I thought he was walking But, but aren't
0: those, isn't it inconsistent? I mean, to say the enhancement apply, especially the eight point for the um, obstruction of Credico means at least a guidelines sentence of almost what they had asked for initially, no?
2: It should. But if you go back and look at that second memo, the, the you know, bar. Directed memo, they never actually say the enhancements shouldn't apply. They just come back and then say, well, here are these reasons why the sentence ought to be lower. So I, I think he was walking a very fine line while at, at the same time, you know, doing this weird little dance where he would refuse to say who wrote the memo or whether he was directed to write the memo. It was all very, very strange. And what's your take? And Matt, you've been in the middle of this before about what
0: preceded it. I saw it as more of a reversible let's let's just say he's walking a fine line, nevertheless, after the tumult of the previous go round. There must have been a very kind of feverish 48 hours of deliberations at the DOJ and very strict kind of uh, scripting of what he had to say. How do you sort of reverse engineer what was going on in DOJ just before the sentencing?
2: I think that's exactly what happened. I, I have been uh, around a number of times when we knew uh, a line lawyer was going to have to go into court and expected very tough questions from the judge. And the parameters of what that lawyer is allowed to say go up to you know very senior levels, not usually to the AG, but something like this where the AG is directly implicated. And, and yet on top of the fact, we know Barr is a micromanager and certainly is now micromanaging this case. I'm sure that he was given instructions. Don't answer that question. And if the judge tries to make you answer, refuse and we'll fight. We'll fight her over it uh, you know, after the fact. Uh, and she decided to just kind of let it go. Yeah,
0: you've been there as a uh, by the way, I've been there sometimes as a lawyer where you actually have to go in and take that uncomfortable position in front of a, a, a judge. You know, well, we're
2: just can't tell you. I'm sorry, your honor. It's not much fun. Sorry, you were saying. I wanted to pick up on one other point uh, Frank said which is you know this idea that somehow Bill Barr was vindicated because right. the sentence that the judge handed down was more in line um with what he recommended is it Misstates the problem with what Bill Barr did. The problem was not the ultimate recommendation that DOJ landed on, the more uh, lenient recommendation. That that was a perfectly appropriate position for the Justice Department to take. It was the Attorney General's intervention, and especially his intervention after the fact, after the government had already filed, and after the president had tweeted about it, that was so problematic. So it's a bit of a straw man argument you see the president's supporters uh, throwing out there now. I think.
0: Yeah. And moreover, Sam, I wonder what you thought about this. I thought it was a pretty strong repudiation of Barr and Trump, not so much in the bottom line. But Jackson made a big point, And I don't think this is inappropriate for a sentencing judge of really driving home the gravitas of the crime of saying, look, You lied. These lies were important. They kept us from discovering some of the truth about the Mueller investigation. This was about covering up for the president. The truth still matters. I mean, she gave the kind of civics lesson that Trump is at pains to ignore or even erase. What would you think about her sort of colloquy on the bench?
3: Well, she read Stone the Riot Act regarding the dangers of what he did, but we have to look big picture here, right? I mean, regardless of what Judge Jackson did vis-a-vis Stone and the sentence, the kind of things that President Trump is doing here are the kinds of things that honestly like we'd probably be like sanctioning other countries for doing. He is defending a man that was involved in an attack on our country. That's a big picture here.
0: Yeah, Spin that out a little bit. What what do you mean exactly?
3: What I mean is that President Trump and Bill Barr or whomever else is involved in trying to get Roger Stone off the hook, they're trying to defend a guy or pardon him who was involved in Russia's attack on the United States. I mean, that's a a crime that we're talking about, right? An attack on our elections perpetrated by Russia and the involvement of a non-state hostile intelligence service, WikiLeaks, in this case. The big picture here is that President Trump is interfering with the Department of Justice. I mean, let's just look at this simply, right? Trying to influence Department of Justice to let his friends and family off the hook when it comes to... Supporting an attack by a foreign power or trying to get people off the hook when they do him political favors. When I was in government, I don't know about you guys, we would probably be issuing demarches, issuing statements, and considering a range of sanctions against any foreign official that acted this way. Our president is doing exactly that. So, from a foreign perspective, what I have to wonder about is. How closely our DOJ counterparts abroad, ministries of justice, et cetera, are willing to work with the Department of Justice going forward, knowing how Bill Barr is acting, not to mention what people think of the U.S. President and the fact that he does not believe in impartial justice when it comes to his friends and family list. And what I worry about is how actual democracies are gonna take a step back from working with DOJ, working with the president, based upon all of these actions. It kind of feels like a foregone conclusion at this point that Stone's gonna get a pardon. I hope that I'm wrong, (laughs) but whether it's Roger Stone or any of the other people named in the Mueller report as uh, working with President Trump, he's acting to try to clean their record publicly. None of us buy into that and using whatever levers he has to let them off the hook. I don't think the buck stops with Roger Stone. I think that the president is feeling fully empowered to manipulate every instrument at his disposal to, again, let his friends friends and family lift off the hook. That's going to have reverberations globally that are probably going to continue as long as he's in office. I mean, seriously, just logical question. If you are a Ministry of Justice overseas right now, would you feel as comfortable working with AG Barr on on any number of issues related to election security or anything of that nature? Probably not, right?
0: I mean, this is a really excellent, not to mention unsettling point. And and just to put another finer point on it, it's not simply letting Stone off the hook. It's letting Stone off the hook for obscuring and protecting Trump from the truth coming out of the possible knowledge Trump had of Stone's attempts to get Russia to meddle in the election. And we'll talk a little bit more about this later and in in, with, with the whole Director of National Intelligence imbroglio now. I want to double back quickly to the DOJ and ask, given the way things played out, we had heard a lot about real demoralization at DOJ. We saw the letter from 2000 feds, former prosecutors and the like, I think Frank among them. So now that it's this little earthquake has subsided, what's your sense of the current morale in the department? Are we still in sort of crisis alert or, you know, is there deep despondency? Is there worry? Is there real prospect of more people coming forward and having some kind of protest? Uh, What's the state of play there?
1: This is Frank. I, I can just share, you know, my impressions of having done some pulse checks this week and actually had people contact me unsolicited, which which is fairly rare. Um, FBI folks are very, usually very, very, um, circumspect and necessarily so, but I sense, um, more than ever before a, not only a morale issue, but a desire to, um, get out as soon as they can. Wow. Um, in terms of retirement eligibility, I, they don't like what's happening. They particularly, are troubled by um, the use of their U.S. attorneys. You know, out in the field, Harry, as you well know, the uh, senior FBI folks, uh, well, not just the senior, FBI agents are joined at the hip with their partners at the U.S. attorney's offices. It's a team approach to, to investigating and prosecuting cases. And in various field offices right now, if you're in Pittsburgh or you're in Salt Lake or you're in Connecticut or you're in St. Louis and you're seeing your U.S. attorney being turned into some kind of uh, double secret investigator for Barr, and you're you're being perhaps pressed into service to be the intake for uh, Rudy Giuliani and all things Ukraine, and you're just sitting there going, "What is going on?" And um, it's a bizarre time, and it and it it actually is uh, impacting those who are thinking about maybe it's time to retire. I think it's putting them over the edge. Down to the agent level, even you're finding. Uh, yeah, this is a head scratcher. So, so uh, you know, if you had asked me, yeah, and I, we've all been asked this question, you know, umpteen times in the last uh, three years, and the, my answer for the most part's been, hey, agents put their head down, they do their work, you know, they're not political, but now, now they're like, what, what? This is a subversion of the investigative and and prosecutive process that's troubling even uh, the street level agent.
3: And it's not just DOJ, though, right? I mean, you look at the cost benefit calculation of going into the intelligence community generally, State Department, et cetera. It's been literally flipped on its head over the course of this presidency. If you're an intelligence analyst right now, you know that if you actually uphold the ethics propagated by the DNI, including speaking truth when it comes to a topic that's politically sensitive for the president, like Russia, you could be fired you could be personally threatened. So there's 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 great risk associated with it. And furthermore, on the intelligence side, intelligence is now being used as a political weapon. The president is cherry picking information from the intelligence community that suits a, a personal narrative, political narrative, et cetera, and completely disregarding stuff that really feeds his insecurities. So in the intelligence community, your work is being weaponized as a political tool rather than being used as an input to policymaking. So for that reason, you kind of just have to question who's actually willing to sign up to work in the intelligence community and perhaps DOJ at this point. I mean, the impact on recruitment and retention broadly within the U.S. government is major. And hopefully if President Trump leaves office in 2020, this is going to take, just from a human resources standpoint, like, years to fix, to convince people that going into government actually allows you to do what you signed up for and that you're not being complicit in this in, in in a political agenda for a sitting president.
2: I think you've nailed the problem in the intelligence community that also is happening at DOJ, which is people are worried about, in this case, the weaponization of law enforcement. I, I will say, though, I do think Barr has bought himself a little bit of time and space with his public protestations, uh, in in my judgment, his insincere public protestations. But I think they've accomplished what they were intended to. After those four prosecutors walked off the case and one of them walked out of the department altogether, there were all sorts of rumors. Uh, I'm sure all of us heard them about other people at DOJ thinking of walking out in protest or mass resignations. And I, I think it was those rumors that led Barr to do what he did. He realized that he was boxed in to this to the extent that he was going to completely lose the building, uh, lose, the, lose the career workforce at the department, and it was going to make it impossible for him to do all the things he wants to do for the president. And my sense is, you know, we're at the stage now where he has kind of stopped the immediate bleeding, but that there's nothing he can do. At least there's nothing he can say to repair the just mass disillusionment. And I think Frank hits the nail on the head it's not just the intervention in the Stone case. It's these repeated appointment of new investigators to go back and reinvestigate cases whenever they produce an outcome the president doesn't like. And that has, you know, I, I think if Bill Barr were to just back off of all those investigations, he might be able to bring the workforce back around. But as long as he continues to behave in that way, nothing he can say can really turn it around. But he, he has at least kind of stopped the, the, the immediate internal crisis that threatened to really boil out of control.
0: It's sort of my sense. I think you're maybe closer to the ground of people there, but I I can, among other things, speak about it personally. You know, I am one of the uh, unlucky souls who were champions of Barr's nomination early. Pretty much this whole thing started when he stood up and lied Uh, is not too, I think it's not too harsh a word about the Mueller report at a really critical time and scales fell from people's eyes or whatever the analogy is. And from that point, I think at a minimum, it's been widespread within the department that he has this view of being attorney general, at least this time around, that is very much personal service to the president and less uh, service to the cause of DOJ. So I think that disillusionment holds. It's held, though, at other times, at least I've been in the building with AGs who were not that popular. I don't think we have to plow the ground at the moment, but people have sort of cynically soldiered on. And maybe that's the mode we're in, because it did feel like in the immediate aftermath of Stone, just as as you say, Matt, that wow, he might have a really serious and widespread revolt on his hands. But let me ask, Frank and Sam, if you guys have any views about Matt's notion that the whole thing is sort of cynical and contrived. I don't want to overstate Matt's position, but what do we make of this friction between Barr and Trump and Barr's threats to resign and Trump's rejoinder that I'm the chief federal law enforcement officer around here? Is there genuine friction? Is he, you know, really brandishing that sword or is it all theatrical?
1: look if you it's a cliche, but if you want to know what someone's really up to, don't don't look at what they say. look at what they do. So uh, Barr can say that the tweets are making his job harder and he wish they weren't there. The reality is look what he's doing. He's continuing to utilize these u s. attorneys to undermine the Mueller inquiry in its entirety while uh, while he's you know in one breath, he says uh, McCabe's not going to get criminally charged. The other breath is, yeah, we've got this case going to look at the Flynn interview that McCabe oversaw. And we're still looking at that. So it goes toward the disingenuousness of what Barr's trying to to say in this false pushback. It's not, it's not ringing true to me at all. And I think what really, I wouldn't be surprised if someday we find out this entire thing was coordinated um, with the White House. And I think where where this is going is bar Barr's going to get caught uh, red-handed in some form of communication or coordination with the White House on on fake pushback, and eventually he's going to have to complain. I'm I'm waiting if he even shows up for the end of March where he's scheduled to testify on the Hill. That if he shows up, that should be very entertaining.
3: March thirty first, I think he will show up. My mom always taught me actions speak louder than words, and right now, just looking <laughs> at looking at the AG's actions. He has supported the president's politicization, the Department of Justice, full stop. If he actually believed in impartial justice, he would have acted very differently when it comes from everything to the Mueller report to how Rudy Giuliani is allowed to engage with the Department of Justice and to act as President Trump's personal attorney general when it comes to Trump's political needs. So right now, Bill Barr may be saying the right thing sometimes. Look at other speeches he's given where he has been so political with respect to what he says, and then look at his track record on issues that directly relate to the president. I think that Bill Barr has clearly demonstrated where his loyalties lie, and they're to the president and not to the Constitution. So,
0: you know, I agree with that, although I'm less certain than you guys are that it's contrived, mainly because Trump is just not that subtle. And he's, I think, particularly ill-suited to play along with his being punked a bit as as Barr is doing and criticized in the public sphere. I think the way I would state the cynical view if this, if I were taking it, would be something like, yeah, Barr decided, it's a little bit Laura Ingram, you know, who's a pretty good channeler of them both, uh, said that what Barr was saying is, don't worry, I got this. And, you know, it might be that he's serving Trump's interests even more than Trump Knows and he's decided Trump's just gonna have to accept this public rebuke a bit because he's coordinated for sure with Pat Cipollone, the White House Counsel, who's his former kind of charge. But it's just hard to see Trump as being able even to kind of play that role. Give it time.
3: Give it time. (laughs) No, I mean seriously.
0: Yeah. Bottom line is where the loyalty
2: lies, but uh, I'm just not sure about the theatrical point. Go ahead, Matt. Do you remember that scene in Goodfellas where the guys pull off the Lufthansa heist? And, any scene in Goodfellas, I remember. So they, they pull off the Lufthansa heist and afterwards, Jamie, played by Robert De Niro, tells them all, now just lie low, don't make any big purchases, everyone just kind of be chill for a while. And the next thing you know, they have a big party and Johnny Roastbeef shows up in a brand new pink Cadillac. <laughs> right. And De Niro yells at him saying, what are you doing? Are you, are you stupid? Are, you're going to get us all pinched. And I think that's what, what Barr is doing. I think he really is deeply frustrated right. because it's as you say – He's trying. He is doing everything the president could ask for and more. And the president is blowing it by driving his pink Cadillac around and tipping off the entire (laughs) world to what they're up to. Here's a free book. I did anybody
0: this sort of side by side, the Trump presidency as good fellas. You know, left (laughs) side is that part of the script. Right side is it's parallel. I think it's time to switch gears and go, I think, especially into Sam's wheelhouse. So as you said earlier, Sam, I mean, this week, the whole approach to DOJ that we've just been discussing, Trump has forcefully extended to a new critical institution and government official, Director of National Intelligence. Maybe you can just set this up for us a little. So what exactly did the acting director, Joseph McGuire, do to provoke Trump's ire? And what ensued and why is it so worrisome for the intelligence community?
3: Sure. Well, this is nothing new, unfortunately. I mean, Trump has done everything possible to change the entire face of the intelligence community since he came into office. I mean, that has been a constant throughout his presidency. He's disparaged the intelligence community, whether it comes to North Korea or Iran or Russia. He's made their jobs harder by actively taking steps that help foreign countries, namely Russia's information warfare campaign against us. Uh, by spreading misinformation and disinformation uh, related to issues like Ukrainian conspiracy theories and more. So his disparagement um, and abuse of the intelligence community has been a constant since he came into office. What happened this week is the acting director of national intelligence, Joseph McGuire, who, by the way, would have had to leave his position um, in, I believe, on March 12th anyway, because he's only allowed to serve in an acting capacity for 210 days. But he was really hopeful of getting the permanent nod, right? He may have been, but uh, that that may have been true. But he he was due to be um, to have to leave in, in March. And what we learned is that the uh, the DNI went up to the Hill and briefed the uh, the Hipsy and the Sissy, the two Intel Oversight Committees on election security issues, which is a Pretty important briefing to deliver. And by the way, something that Trump ostensibly should have been briefed on regularly as president in the middle of an election year and should have been part of the presidential daily briefing if President Trump actually bothered to read it. But uh, reportedly, the staff in the DNI went up to the Hill, briefed lawmakers about election security threats and reportedly told lawmakers that Russia uh, has a preference for President Trump. Now, there's some different reporting on what exactly they said, but that's the gist of it. McGuire apparently was berated by President Trump. Trump was upset that this briefing was given to the Hill, said Democrats were going to use it against him, and was particularly upset that Chairman Adam Schiff was part of that briefing. Chairman Adam Schiff is the chairman of the House Intel Committee, so hard to imagine a briefing without him there. But Trump is obviously upset at Chairman Schiff because of impeachment proceedings and more. McGuire is no longer the acting DNI. Instead, we have Ambassador Rick Grinnell, who has no intelligence experience now named as the acting director of national intelligence. In addition, by the way, to concurrently serving as ambassador to Germany and special envoy for Kosovo. So the acting DNI job is seemingly becoming more of an extracurricular activity than a full-time job under this administration. And what it really tells me is that President Trump views intelligence yet again as a political weapon. The Russians developing a preference for President Trump is nothing new, right? They preferred President Trump in the 2016 election. His actions since being elected president have given them even more reason to prefer President Trump, right? I mean, really, who better could be a U.S. president than a guy who censors intelligence, politicizes intelligence, undermines the credibility of our institutions, and more? And the question now becomes... If President Trump isn't willing to acknowledge the realities of the threat from Russia, what is he actually doing about it, right? I mean, if he's, he's upset about lawmakers hearing that – f- the facts, the analysis that Russia prefers him as a candidate, it is highly unlikely that he's actually devoting resources to match that threat and or checking his own activities to ask himself why – he's Putin's preference. So this raises enormous resourcing questions. And it also, frankly, gives us more reason to question any, quote unquote, intelligence assessment that we hear about from this administration. Anytime we hear an intelligence assessment, any of us, I think, with a national security background have already started questioning it. I mean, you look at the Soleimani strike where they were throwing around that there was an imminent threat, only two weeks later not include any mention of an imminent threat in their justification to Congress. Um, and it is clear that President Trump has let intel come out that he views as helpful to him rather than what paints an accurate reality. Now we're finding out that he wants or he is upset that the intelligence community did not filter their analysis to soothe his ego or to soothe his own insecurities. So Anytime I hear from the IC publicly going forward, I'm going to have to kind of ask myself, like, did that pass the Trump test? And if it did, it's because it's viewed as helpful to him. And the the bottom line takeaway is that at this point, is the intelligence community being used as part of President Trump's own misinformation campaign or influence campaign against the American people, and I am the hugest supporter of the intelligence community. But at this point, I I don't really know that we can trust what they're telling us publicly because it probably has gone through the Trump filter if he is letting it reach the public sphere.
1: Boy, Sam has really uh, wrapped up the, I was going to say highlights, but unfortunately they're the lowlights of all of this development. We we are watching not only the diminishing of the role of intelligence in a president's decision-making but and the politicization of intelligence, but now likely the suppression of intelligence. Imagine a scenario, um, which I think we're headed rapidly to, where Unpleasant news will never get to the White House so that if collectors determine that Iran has actually stopped heading toward a a nuclear weapon program, and that's contrary to the president's narrative that uh, Iran is bad and it's a threat, um, we won't ever hear that, nor might it even be tasked for collection. Similarly, if if, uh, the president wants us to think North Korea is just fine, um, he's still in love with Kim Jong-un then an intel collection efforts and reporting that Kim Jong-un is actually rapidly moving to be able to deliver a nuclear weapon, that will never, um, might not only not get reported, it might not even get collected because it won't be on the priority collection list. And, And so this is, you know, we earlier talked about morale amongst the troops. Imagine being that intelligence analyst, as Sam referred to earlier, on the ground saying I I why bother um it's not getting up there it's not going to get reported so this is a very very uh troubling scenario and when when I talked to some people this is very early now but who were in and around uh, around what was briefed to the to the uh, intel committees um that caused Trump to flip out um this is more than just hey Putin likes you this was This was, hey, we're going to see 2016 all over again.
0: What's your sense, anybody, about precisely, if the intelligence assessment included that, the kinds of mischief, either new or old, that Russia is about in the 2020 election?
1: Here's, uh, and and again, with all the caveats that um, this is very early, but what I'm learning is that The briefing was, we're going to see the same playbook as 2016. So social media propaganda and or hacking um, will be included and it will be targeted early in the primaries and it may be underway right now. And people even making some early conclusions that the – if you remember the reporting, I don't know, three or four weeks ago that Russia hacked into Burisma. Yeah. Um, And it's subsidiaries and and that, hey, that was probably a search for dirt on the Bidens that has come up as, hey, don't be surprised if you see some cockamamie stories come flying out um, on social media.
2: I think the thing that's most disturbing about this, though the least surprising probably, is that apparently the catalyst for Trump moving uh, against McGuire and putting Grinnell in is his outrage that Adam Schiff was briefed on this. The our kind of architecture of our intelligence oversight system now is that the intelligence committees, because the intellig- intelligence operates in secret and the public can't uh, be briefed on it and can't you know, c- conduct kind of oversight the way you would of other agencies, that the intelligence committees are supposed to be briefed on everything. And, you know, the fact that Trump is so mad about Schiff getting this information shows you that, you know, his mindset from 2016 is still the mindset he has right now, where the enemy is not the Russians. The enemy are domestic political opponents. And he would rather keep information about Russian interference uh, secret than, present a united front with, you know, Democrats who he sees as basically his enemy, and he's willing to ally himself with anyone when it comes to, to to fighting them. And I think that sets us up, you know, very poorly for the 2016 election. And I think this is all a complete outgrowth of his, of the, the impeachment vote, where he now feels, uh, you know, authorized to just thumb his nose at Congress on anything, even things where, the, you know, his administration is required to brief them by the law. He just doesn't care because he knows they're not going to hold him accountable at all.
0: That's right, isn't it, Sam? I mean, this briefing, this mortal sin that McGuire committed was otherwise saying he was following his legal duty, right? This wasn't he just decided they ought to, you know, it might be a nice idea for them to know this. This is his job, right? Same as it was Vinman's job to testify.
3: Of course it's his job, but also just on a more basic level, leaving aside that it was his job What president wouldn't want lawmakers to know about threats to our democracy, a president who doesn't care about threats to our democracy as long as they don't hurt him? So we've seen this with this briefing. We've also seen it more broadly with, you know, the worldwide threat briefing that is due to be delivered uh, to Congress soon. There was separate reporting that the intelligence community canceled the public aspect of that briefing because they did not want to upset the president. I mean, just think about that.
0: The whole thing really does feel, I was going to say stunning, but I don't know if we get stunned anymore, but certainly abhorrent. But yeah, I want to, as Matt says, just the role that Chiff might have been in the room or he first. Trump in very paranoid fashion, thought it went directly to Schiff. And there was this, we have a story in the post and, you know, it must've been pretty dramatic if it got around so much and so quickly where Trump just, you know, is seething and dresses him down and and McGuire is disappointed. and the drama of this for the great sin of of, doing his job of briefing the, the chief of right. And just two other points to add. I think this is implicit, but one, it is an extra level here. We're talking about, as Sam sort of says, and Frank facts, you know, it's one thing to be upset about taking certain positions, but literally it's this kind of Orwellian effort to deny the existence of certain facts. And also these facts I mean, give me a break. It's like a huge surprise that Russia is trying to use its own playbook and do it again in the 2020 election. This huge revelation is what totally makes Trump wig out. It seems almost an extra lap and especially
3: dangerous that it, that it's applying to the intelligence communities. Well, and it gets to a broader concern about the separation of powers. And, you know, you, you asked me, was McGuire doing his job? Yes, McGuire was doing his job. The intelligence community has a statutory obligation to keep the intelligence committees fully and currently informed about covert activities and really up to date on key intelligence issues, activities and and threats. Part of that as well is so that Congress can perform its oversight functions of the intelligence community and of the uh, executive branch more broadly. President Trump does not want Congress to perform oversight functions, whether it's of the White House, whether it's of the State Department, the Justice Department, or whatever other institution. I mean, the obstruction of Congress— element has been pervasive, whether it's on impeachment, on this issue, or any others. This is just the latest example where the president is trying to stymie members of the executive branch from providing information to Congress that's used as part of the separation, you know, to, to support the separation of powers. Um, and that's that's a theme that we've seen running throughout, unfortunately.
0: It doesn't seem like it'll stop. Let me just, um, as a final note here, ask your other people's thoughts about Frank's despairing view that it'll just make the community kind of throw up its hands and ask why do anything. When we've had episodes like this in the past, there's been at least some suggestion, some members of the intelligence community trying to subtly get the facts out or do their jobs in slightly pushback. Do you see um, that as likely here, an effort to you know, continue to do the job, get the threat out and, and try to lie low? Or do you really think that the basic effect of Trump's hissy fits is to almost paralyze our intelligence agencies against this threat that is like coming looming on us like a freight train with November on the horizon?
1: Well, imagine if you have something to report in terms of abuse fraud waste abuse, and you're you're essentially looking to be a whistleblower or something less of a variation of that and imagine you've got somebody like Ambassador Grinnell filling in temporarily, or as has been rumored um uh, Representative Doug Collins of Georgia uh being moved in permanently. And you, yeah, you know, you know there, there's no chance of you, you moving forward with any kind of comfort that your complaint isn't going to get you fired or that it's ever going to advance past your agency. So, I, I think paralysis is on, is is almost a certainty um, unless something drastically changes.
2: Let's say you overcome that paralysis. You look at what happened to the the whistleblower in the Ukraine scandal who's been slimed by uh, right-wing media for months. And now. his lawyer. Did you see what happened this week? Yeah, and, and his lawyer who got a death threat, someone who the department has charged with a crime now. Uh, but let's say you overcome that paralysis and you go forward and try to blow the whistle. What's going to happen? There are rumors that Trump is looking to f- to fire the uh, inspector general for the intelligence community, who is the person who, you know, fought to get that whistleblower camp- complaint transmitted to Congress. Don't know if he will or not, but he's certainly trying to. And even and even if he doesn't, uh, you can bet that if uh, a whistleblower does bring a complaint to the inspector general. DOJ and the new acting DNI, Grinnell, are going to do everything they can to block that complaint from being submitted to Congress. And the closer we get to the election, the more ability they have to to stifle that kind of thing because the clock becomes on their side.
3: Yeah. And the final thing I'll add, I mean, we're kind of waiting to see here on this latest bit of reporting, but unless I missed it on my red eye last night, where's Richard Burr on this, right? I mean, where where are the Republicans on the intelligence committees when it comes to the threat from Russia. There was reporting that Republican lawmakers in this briefing were questioning the briefer and pointing to Trump's track record, ironically, on I believe Ukraine or being tough on Russia, rather than acknowledging what the intelligence community said and figuring out how to use the instruments of US power to try to confront Russia's threat. So The Republicans to date have been complicit in painting anything, any analysis as a um, Democratic weapon against the president rather than just a statement of fact. At the same time, we have Speaker McConnell refusing to allow bills on election security to move forward. So unless someone like Senator Burr speaks up, I don't think that – I, I don't have a lot of faith that the Republicans are just going to, again, take this for what it is, which is an input from the intelligence community, and use it to try to, to try to protect our elections. And unfortunately, the more this threat is allowed to metastasize, the harder it is, of course, for us to hold President Trump accountable at the ballot box in November. So this is kind of like a slow burn that's reaching a boiling point right now. Um, and other than Mitt Romney, who can we point to on the Republican side? that's willing to speak out against the president. And I, I am confounded I'm from a psychological perspective as to why, but it seems pretty basic. They don't want to get on the president's bad side, but they're just letting this continue at this point.
0: You know, this is a really great point. And we had heard early on when Trump's playbook became apparent that there was the strong tradition, especially on the Senate side and in the intelligence committee of bipartisan and kind of grown up, just sensible conduct. And so that would point directly at Senator Burr and exactly it has everything now been captured and subsumed within the Trump megalomania. I think I got to now go back to Frank and say, I'm really sorry that we had this discussion, (laughs) but I hope nevertheless, it's been somewhat illuminating for listeners. We end today. This might be news to you, Sam. I hope it's not. As we do other shows with a five words or fewer feature where we take a question from a listener and the feds have to answer it in five words or fewer fun. Our question today comes from listener Jordan Aronson, who asks, will Trump? Pardon Stone. And if so, when will he do it? And uh, Sam, we'll let you go third. So you can try quickly to scramble for, but we're very strict about the five word limit. So Matt or Frank, go for it.
2: Yes. Depends
3: on
1: the sentencing date. I'm going to say yes, sooner than you think. And
3: I'm going to say the pardon party will continue. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Excellent. Five words and even a broader theme. I don't normally preface my answers, but just because the odds out there are 20 to one, and I think I could make a killing. I'm going to go with no. <laughs> All right, we'll see. It won't be my first prediction that went wrong. I think that would be the... Uh along with others, the Bill Barr as institutionalist. All right. Thank you very much to returning regulars, Matt and Frank, and to Sam, who sailed through her first visit to Talking Feds. <laughs> Thanks, guys. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast, You can follow us on Twitter at TalkingFedsPod to find out about future episodes and other Feds-related content. And you can also check us out on the web at TalkingFeds.com, where we have full episode transcripts. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for five words or fewer, or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segment. Thanks very much for tuning in. And don't worry, as long as you need answers, even answers to sad, depressing questions, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Jennifer Bassett, Anthony Lemos, Rebecca Lopatin, and Jenny Josephson. David Lieberman and Rosie Griffin are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Sarah Philippoum and Sam Trachtenberg. Thanks, as always, to the incredible Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. See you next time.